welcome to Stanford Political Journal's podcast, The Acts in Politics. I'm Kayla. And I'm Ben. And this is episode 19. So today we figured we'd start out with um, giving you a brief overview of the national news in terms of cabinet secretaries that we have not addressed yet um, on the show. So since we last spoke, there have been some confirmations. There's a few people in hot water and some future battles coming up. You want to get us started? Yeah, so since we last spoke, um, Steve Mnuchin was confirmed for the Treasury, Betsy DeVos for Education, uh, Stephen Shulkin, 100 to 0 vote, he's now um, the director of the VA, Uh, Linda McMahon is now the (laughs) director of the Small Business Administration, she formerly of the WWE, um, and Tom Price is at HHS. Right now, as of today, the 15th, uh, we have news just in last night that um, Michael Flynn will no longer be the head of the National Security Council, um, and that Steve Pudzer has withdrawn himself from consideration as Secretary of Labor, with no replacement announced yet. Um, this is, looks terrible. All of this looks terrible. It's an absolute monster of a, of a week right now, and it's only Wednesday. Um, yes, absolutely. Well, and I think that it's not only the people in hot water, but it's also the people who slid by in confirmation. Right. You know, Betsy DeVos did not get in without a fight, um, and that, and I believe other votes have been strictly along party lines. Um, you know, it's the 51 to 49 in the Senate. Yeah, I was surprised by DeVos. Um, a lot of people asked why a John McCain, a... Gosh, I mean, name your senator. All they needed was one more vote um, for an evidently unqualified candidate. I mean, if if you were going to pick a battle, this was the one to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and she got in. I think I misspoke because it was two Alaskan senators who actually flipped to give it the, the um, 49 to 51, I believe. Because mm-hmm. party line is even, is even less. Um, so, I mean, even there, it was so close. It was so close. But we ended up how we ended up. And no, actually, the um, the vice president had to break the tie because it was 50 right. to 50. I apologize. So I think it's absolutely what you said. I mean, this has been quite a week. And some of these nominees are absolutely screeching by. And the rest of them are not even getting through. Yeah, and I mean, this. Uh, as I'm looking at the list of nominees in front of us, um, some of the most controversial names are the ones that are coming up in the future. I mean, we have... Scott Pruitt for the EPA, who's already um, a Republican, came out today, I don't recall which one, saying that he would vote against him. Rick Perry for Energy, Ben Carson for HUD, and Mick Mulvaney for OMB, a number of Republicans. I think John McCain t- said today that he would vote against Mick Mulvaney. Um, it, it's like they've lo- they've left the best for last. A- a- just as the Russia stuff's blowing up, my mom texted me an hour ago saying, hey, there's a Russian surveillance submarine off the coast of Connecticut. Um which will not help Scott Pruitt be named the head of the EPA. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is coming out at a time when national security and um, foreign relations are just a huge question mark in terms of what are we doing. Um, You know, Trump is now making statements as the president of the United States, which I think is very different than him making statements as a presidential nominee. And... You know, we are. I think the media is looking at them through a bit of a different lens now and taking him very seriously um, because, again, he is the president of the United States. Um, so a lot is happening, I think, especially with Russia, and it's not good. And 
I think that this is a critical moment to see what he will do right after Russia violated, um, you know, a Cold War era treaty. Um, and, you know, it is a necessary moment for him to either show strength or show that we are going to let Russia slide in major foreign politics. Like, this is a critical moment. Yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if the Flynn issue didn't go all the way to the top. Dan Rather said yesterday that this could be bigger than Watergate. Who knows? I mean, a lot of the issues, we were making our list of issues for this episode, so many of them seem to still be in the oven. So many of them are just breaking, and they're all breaking at once. Um, of course, that plays into the kind of chaos theory that surrounds Trump. Um, people argue often that he wants that and that he will use smoke screens to distract. Um, and it's weird because it definitely is happening. I think the only question is whether it's intentional. So, like, take Steve Mnuchin, who is now the Secretary of the Treasury. There, there could have been a lot of protest around him. Um, he is a Washington or a Wall Street insider, uh, and it definitely slipped by. Of course, I don't think that Donald Trump planned to have Michael Flynn be forced to resign um, as a smokescreen to cover up the Mnuchin um, confirmation. No, yeah, and. For those of you who don't know, the biggest controversy around Flynn is, you know, the fact that he was in talks with um, Russian diplomats the day that sanctions were announced against Russia when um, it was still the Obama administration. And, um, you know, he is looking at... Uh, they're basically he's under investigation for whether or not he lied to the FBI, whether or not he lied to the vice president. Um, and... That's really the context of where this is all coming from, and in terms of who it involves, it's, again, still a big question mark. Yeah, I mean, this could range from um, completely blowing over to prosecution under, under the Logan Act. It's a law from 1799 that says that individual citizens who are not um, working for the government or representing the government can't get involved uh, in international affairs, which he would have been doing by talking to foreign diplomats. This also extends to the rumor story uh, multiple, uh, with multiple confirmations that uh, Trump officials on his campaign uh, were making frequent contact with Russian officials, which could really just start some fireworks. I and mean, that could be multiple co- prosecutions, um, maybe even a treason prosecution, perhaps articles of impeachment. Um, there is an investigation that's already been launched into Russian interference in the election. I think the real guy to talk about right now is James Comey. He has a lot of explaining to do. I'm surprised if there was a letter written about Hillary, there should have been a a, a manifesto written about Trump um, and sent to senators and to the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really up in the air right now, and... There's no telling what direction things could go in. Uh, I mean, Trump continuously makes inflammatory statements. Uh, earlier this week, he said that, um, you know, he would be fine. He could live with a one-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, you know, it's things like that that I think continue to surprise the American public in terms of his unpredictability. But at the same time, I guess we should be expecting this um, on some level, this unpredictability. Yeah, I mean, the real word, especially as it pertains to the Israeli situation, is isolation, I think. Um, He's isolated himself from the U.S. and from the populace and from perhaps his voting base, um, who are increasingly turning against him. There was a poll out of Iowa yesterday that showed that he, who won the state by nine points, um, now has favorability of only like 40%. -hmm. But he's isolated from Russia, too, right? I mean, they're launching, um, they're testing weapons 
to the extent that he might see them as an ally, they do not see him as that. They perhaps see him as a pawn. Um, I can't imagine who's on his side, even on his inner circle. I mean, Bannon probably sees him as a puppet. Priebus is probably just trying to keep his head above water. Paul Ryan's probably watching all of his policies kind of fall apart because, I mean, maybe he could have argued that he could sit through all the more terrible stuff to get through tax reform, but I don't even see that on the table right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the, the executive branch right now just seems entirely isolated. Absolutely, and, you know, the fact that his Twitter is more alive than ever is even more evidence of that. I mean, he has taken his own statements into his own hands, largely. Um, And every once in a while, I think we see them trying to bring him back a little bit, but for now, I don't think it's working. Yeah. But um, shifting a little bit to our campus news, um, not a ton out of campus this week, but there was a very controversial uh, dismissal of a Title IX lawyer who was... Uh, dismissed because uh, she did not necessarily agree with how the process was run here at Stanford in terms of um, what happens when a woman is sexually assaulted and she tries to take her case forward. So the basically the grounds were that if you don't agree with how we handle it, we probably shouldn't refer students to you. Um, and this is pretty disappointing by Stanford. Um, I can't imagine how they think it's going to look other than bad. You know, at, at this point in their um, this saga of Title IX and trying to improve Title IX for women, and for anyone on this campus for that matter, um, it's a really, really weird decision to come out now, and I really don't know how to possibly justify this one. I mean, Stanford has done a lot of good things, and this is not one of them. Yeah, I mean... It's hard to imagine that this would any, be anything but a negative move for publicity. Interestingly, it seems to have kind of blown over, maybe just that it was week five and everyone had midterms, but I've seen very little discussion about it. Maybe people just aren't surprised anymore. Um, an even more interesting point might be to think about, for all of us, to start thinking about how Title IX will be implemented um, with Betsy DeVos as um, the head of the Department of Education. Um, she may, as the Stanford Review advocated, um, adopt a reasonable doubt standard for Title IX cases as opposed to a preponderance of evidence standard. Um, it'll be super interesting to see how Stanford positions itself in a national context, um, in the context of both its peer institutions and uh, the Department of Education. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that is one thing we didn't quite get to with our first interview here with uh, Michelle Dauber, which is coming up a little bit later on the show. Um, And it's a really terrific interview. She talks a lot about what's happening on this campus and why, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Um, But hopefully we can sometime, at some point, do a follow-up for what sexual assault um, prevention, what sexual assault um, the process looks like under this new administration and this new secretary in particular, because I think that there are going to be a lot of changes, and I really wonder how it's going to go, because I think Betsy DeVos has so much in front of her that she could do, both negatively and positively, and how she chooses to do it and who influences her is going to really, really matter. So stay tuned for our interview with uh, Michelle Dauber. She's fantastic. I interviewed her, and I could not have been more impressed with 
how absolutely brilliant she is. So thank you so much. Um, and make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Michelle Dauber is a professor in the law school here at Stanford University. She is wonderful, absolutely brilliant, and a firm advocator to try and improve the sexual assault policy, not only on campus, I would say, but, I mean, nationally. My name is Kaylee Guillory, and I'm here with Michelle Dauber. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So um, I wanted to start off with my first question being that there has been a cascade of articles and student voices on the issue of sexual assault. And I was wondering when you really think this issue started to come to the surface and how, you know, what, what in your opinion, when did that start? Well, actually, there have been waves of um, activism about sexual assault on college campuses um, really for the last 40 years. The most current wave of activism started, I think, perhaps in 20, uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, following the issuance of some guidance from the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights that really just reminded colleges and universities um, of the law and what their responsibilities are to address sexual assault under the law. I think that there was a new generation of college students um, who were experiencing sexual assault like all past generations of college students who who found that guidance document and read it and thought, um, you know, I have rights. I am going to file a complaint and I am going to ask the government to investigate my college, in this case, uh, University of North Carolina, um, University of Wisconsin, um, Amherst College, I think, were some of the ones that were in that wave, um, Yale University. And, um, and I'm going to demand that my school live up to um, what the government is saying they have to under the law. And I think that became very galvanizing for the new social movement that we're seeing. And you mentioned some specific examples there, and I, I want to follow up with, do you think that it takes those specific examples to really get people to rally around a movement, you know, versus we know that there's an influx of these happening, do we need a face? I do think that personal stories um, play a role in galvanizing um, social movements generally. I think that that is not specific to sexual assault. I think that that's a feature of social movements, particularly in our social media um, fueled uh, age where people can very easily and quickly see a face and a person. They can see who that person is connected to, who they already know um, through various forms of social media, through you know Instagram or through um, Facebook or whatever. And um, so I think that personal stories with a name and a face are extremely galvanizing. Um, in the social movement context, um, and that's not just true in um, sexual assault. It's also true in Black Lives Matter, in immigration, um, in you know working for Syrian refugees or in um, deportations. You know, having a an individual uh, name, face, family to care about and to be attached to as an as an icon or an emblem um, of you know, a larger set of people is very helpful. 
And you mentioned the social media context of, of this wave. And I'm wondering also, do you think that that has made this particular wave of activism more powerful? Or what, ki- what other kinds of influence do you think it's had? Uh, absolutely. I think that that's just absolutely true, that the fact that... Um, uh, now to get your message out, you know, with the advent of things like Facebook Live and so forth, it's even easier, you know. But um, the ability of people to amplify and reamplify a message through social media um, and to have that message move through social networks instead of having to count on traditional media to carry it and the ability to take pieces of traditional media and then you know, package them and reamplify them through social media, I think, has really helped to galvanize and move the movement along. Yeah. And shifting a little bit to the context of this university, um, I think, we you know, you've been a little bit uh, of a critic or a, a critic of Stanford and a lot of its actions when it, when it comes to sexual assault. Um, in what ways do you disagree with the university's handling of sexual assault, and how does it feel to be at odds with the university as a faculty member? Well, let me start by saying that um, uh, I I don't like the characterization that I am um, a critic, even though I am critical of certain aspects of things that are happening um, as a, you know policies or things that are happening on campus, because I certainly um, have also been in the role of being. Um, uh, in a leadership position on this issue, have you know cra- helped to craft and develop policies, helped to implement policies, um, and so I think that sort of Michelle Dauber, comma critic, is uh, not a totally uh, accurate characterization of you know kind of the full complexity of what I think. I think that um, you know Stanford has done some things well and some things uh, not so well. Um, on the on the sort of landscape of things we've done well, I think that the implementation of the confidential counseling office is a very positive thing. All the students that I've talked to like those counselors and think they're doing a good job. I don't have any evidence that that's anything but positive, um, and um, you know think we've we've done well there and put resources in where we needed to and made something good happen. Um, uh, I'm in the process of working with a team of colleagues from the medical school um, and uh, to develop a, uh, a, an empowerment program um, and some new uh, cutting-edge prevention strategies that I think will also be positive. So, you know, where there, there are positive contributions to make, I want to make them. And, um, you know, so I, I don't, like I said, I think it's too reductive to say critic. That said, um, I certainly am not trying to back away from, in any way, the fact that I um, do think that there there are some shortcomings um, with uh, the policies that Stanford has put into place over the last um, year especially um, and some of the implementation. And um, I think that um, I think that 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 is that is seen as a negative thing to be doing because the culture at Stanford um, is such that people who speak out are seen as being negative. 
but I see it as being a positive contributor because my goal is to make Stanford a better and safer place. Um, we have an obligation under federal and state law to provide every student with a safe place to learn. And we have an obligation, a moral and ethical obligation, to do everything we can to make sure that when a student is sexually assaulted here, that they um, receive a victim-centered response and that they're able to continue their education. And that, um, and we also have a moral and ethical obligation when we think that a student has committed an act like that to remove them from the campus, in my opinion, um, not temporarily, so that they can't injure um, other Stanford students. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think that being a critic is a positive role and an important role in this context. I think speaking up or speaking out, um, saying I have expertise in this area and I don't think we're doing the right thing um, and I would rather see us do this instead um, is being a positive contributor. I wish that it were seen that way. You asked me how it feels. Um, you know, my goal is to make Stanford a better place. Um, that's my sole motivation. Um, uh, and um, I think the right approach to take to dissenters is to bring them inside, uh, hear what they have to say, make sure that you have all voices represented in every process, um, make sure that you are not um, you know, pushing people to the margin because what happens when you do that is you're excluding perspectives, you know, a diversity of perspectives that you might need in order to have the best possible approach. Mm-hmm. So um, I am going to keep contributing um, what I think. And um, right now, uh, in the past administration, it didn't get, I didn't really, it didn't get a lot of traction. But um, I think it's sort of my obligation as a faculty member to keep um, offering that perspective um, because uh, that's, that's, that's how you get to good decisions is you hear all perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing I wanted to also ask about, just to broaden it a little bit, was do you think that a lot of faculty, not just at Stanford, but also at other institutions, have the same problem with getting pigeonholed into the role of critic or, you know, not a critic versus the more nuanced language that you're talking about? I mean, I think that I can't really speak about other schools. I can say here that, uh, you know, I have said in the past and feel that the that John Mendy did not provide, and John Hennessy as well, did not provide the leadership that this university needed on the issue of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, and part of that problem is that they were both in leadership positions for such a long time that um, that created a feeling, I think, of, um, you know, loyalty versus disloyalty rather than, you know, just simply agree versus disagree um, on a particular thing. So, you know, disagreeing got interpreted as disloyalty or um, as being, you know, so, uh, you know, stigmatized. I think that's, I think that's a mistake, and I think that is not how it should be now. Does that happen at other places? I'm sure it does. Um, I think it's 
very true at Stanford and from my colleagues at other universities, I would say maybe more so here than other places because of the personalities of the individuals that were in, um, in leadership positions here and because of the long time that they were in those leadership positions. And, I mean, that's a perfect segue into the next question. Are you optimistic about this new administration that's coming in? Uh, you know, of course, um, uh, I am hopeful uh, because I would like to see some changes, and I'm hopeful that maybe, you know, this change in leadership um, provides an opportunity for um, for that to happen. It's a space. So let me give some examples of what I'm talking about. I think you asked me earlier about specifics, and I didn't get there in my answer. But... Um, Let's just take the Turner case, for example. Um, so what did we have in the case of Mr. Turner? We had a recruited athlete um, on the swim team who committed an, uh, three felony sex crimes at a fraternity party at Kappa Alpha in a public place that was poorly lighted, um, where there were no video cameras surveilling. Um, and, um, and there uh, there, the um, response to that has not included um, looking at the issues of the swim team, fraternities, lighting, or video cameras. The one thing that it seems that the university did look at was alcohol, although then after the president made a statement saying, the new alcohol policy is in part in response to sexual assault. I believe that he made that statement in um, March of um, 2016. Um, then the university denied it and said that, you know, no, 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 it didn't have anything to do with alcohol. Well, the president of the university said that it did. So I think that you know, we, we have to believe that the president of the university was empowered to say what was accurate. Um, and so I think that was a fumble. But, um, but, and so a lot of people focused on that fumble. They focused on, you know, um, well, they felt misled. They felt like maybe the wool was being pulled over their eyes. They thought maybe it was a PR move. I mean, that was the kinds of talk I think that you probably heard among students, right? The thing that concerns me is is not so much that, it's that there are all these other things that I mentioned earlier that didn't get to be part of the solution. So for example, on fraternities, um, this was not the only incident that year even that was highly publicized and very alarming about fraternities. So within, say, a two-year period, we had the release of Evan Spiegel's Kappa Sig emails. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. They were on, um, on uh, maybe they were on uh, Gawker or, um, you know, and they were terrible. I'm not going to quote from them on your, I don't know if this is a family podcast, but they were horrifying. And... Um, I think that they got a lot of attention for being, you know, spicy or salacious, but what they really indicated was deeply embedded rape culture and misogyny inside Kappa Sig that was, you know, really upsetting, that was not 
addressed in the kind of way that you would hope. I mean, what happened as a result of that was that John H. Mendy, you know, issued an email saying, you know, I don't agree with this. Well, it's like, who thought you did agree with that? Is is that going to be the end or are we going to go on, you know? Because where's the consequence for this? And I think if you contrast the lack of consequence to Kappa Sig with the, you know, almost over the top level of consequence that was visited upon band, you can see, um, you know, there is clearly an issue with the way fraternities are addressed or not addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, just remember that when these emails were released in 2014, Spiegel had graduated in 2012. So this was not like the dark ages. There were still people here who were students who received those emails. So just to refresh your audience's recollection, he sent these emails. I believe he was social chair or maybe president of the fraternity. And they were horrifying. And they went to like the whole frat got these emails. And they were just like unbelievably bad. I invite your listeners to go look them up. They are they're in valley wag and they're terrible and um and uh someone i guess didn't like mr spiegel very much and saved them up until he became rich and famous and then leaked them and what stanford i think should have done properly when they saw that was open a title nine investigation into kappa sig and find out you know is this culture still going on um if you think about it these are the kinds of emails that have led to the suspension of the seasons of entire teams uh, recently at Princeton and at Harvard and at Penn. But we had an email. And then everyone praised the provost for writing this very brave email. And as far as the community knows, that was it, case closed. Later that year, we had, um, so that was a missed opportunity. Later that year, we had Sigma Alpha Epsilon, which everyone says, oh, yes, they lost their house. Well, that's true, but not at first. What happened was they threw a party that was really problematic in a lot of ways. There were a lot of reports of bad things, uh, sexual uh, violence, perhaps, sexual harassment that had occurred at this party. And um, and the... Uh, and the investigation resulted in a recommendation that they experienced some sanction, which was the temporary loss of their house. And then they appealed, and the university rolled that back and said they could stay for, until the end of the year. And after they received that, you know, like a kind of um, dispensation, mm-hmm. They then retaliated horribly against a student so badly that she experienced some very severe consequences from it. This was published in the Daily, so I'm not giving anything away here. And um, as a result of that second round of bad behavior, they then lost their house. So that was, again, the failure, I think, of holding them fully accountable that then really led to the retaliation. You know, when they made their appeal, um, there was information that was submitted in the appeal, I believe, and I'm just recalling this from the media, so I could be getting this wrong, that they had not obeyed their alcohol probation during the period of appeal in the first place, and so they didn't deserve to win that appeal, but then they did. Mm -hmm. And so there's a pattern of leniency that we can observe in fraternities, and then sort of the icing on the cake was this sexual assault that occurred, you know, in a public place at a party. So we had three 
you know, very closely timed together. And I'm sure this is not everything. These are just the things that made it into the paper. Right. Um, that happened in fraternities. And, and here's what I think. It's time for the university to have a serious conversation about whether fraternities, first of all, have an ongoing positive role to play in campus life in 2017. These are, to some extent, archaic organizations that are based on a history of exclusion both racial exclusion, income exclusion, and gender exclusion. Um, are they still in an, in an environment, for example, of gender fluidity is an all-male organization, even something that we want to continue to back as an institution? Now, maybe it is, but we're not even having the conversation. Harvard is having that conversation. Right. Um, pro, uh, the president of Harvard, Drew Faust, had a you know multi-year process in which they looked at this and they said, we don't believe these institutions, final clubs, which is what they called them there, can be made safe, essentially, for women. We think they're uh, economically and racially exclusionary, and we want to discourage students from joining. So we're going to put into place not an outright ban, mm-hmm. but some uh, rules that will we think disincentivize the membership in these exclusionary clubs. And, you know, I think to her great credit, she has stuck to her guns about it, even though she took a lot of pressure. I think that is the kind of leadership that we would benefit from and haven't had. Mm -hmm. So that's point one. Yes. Point two on the swim team is that um, you may have noticed that in the Stanford Daily, there was published um, recently an op-ed from a swim alum uh, who was the woman captain of the women's swim team. I forget her name, Mm -hmm. but it was very moving. I cried when I read it, and she talked about how much sexism and misogyny she experienced. This is from 2009, so it's a few years ago, but not the dark ages, um, and that she's been coming back to these alum swim meets, and she wasn't coming this year because she just couldn't face the kinds of terrible sexist comments that members of the men's swim team tended to make. She also recounted be experiencing sex harassment, um, not sexual harassment, but sex harassment uh, by a coach. Um, where he encouraged her to swim with the men's team and then harassed the men's team members because they couldn't beat a girl. And then she recounted a teammate who was roofied. And um, then there, you know, so then we had a swim team member who committed this assault, and he had two teammates with him at the time he committed the assault. And um, they both wrote character letters for him after he was convicted of three sex crimes saying what a great guy he was. So I think that's enough evidence that we should take a look at the swim team and maybe at the rest of athletics because we had this um, article that was just published in the New York Times about the football player who was under suspicion of um, sexual assault. And the coach, I thought, said um, a, a, a pretty remarkable thing, which was, you know, that he knew he was under some... I'm just quoting from the New York Times here, not speaking about this, anything I know, you know, mm-hmm. personal about the case. But in the New York Times, the coach, football coach, said, um, you know, that he knew the player was under investigation for something, but he hadn't asked, essentially, what it was. And in in many big-time uh, 
D1 football schools, if you are under suspicion for violence against women, you're benched until that is cleared up. And that is clearly not the policy at Stanford. And I think students might want to know why that is. So that's another thing that we are not looking at. And then finally, there are just hardscape things like this happened in a dark area. Why aren't there lights? And, you know, why don't we have videotape um, running uh, you know, around these fraternity houses and EBF and other places that we know have all-campus parties and might provide some sexual assault risk. For example, um, when Brock Turner was arrested, the prosecutor asked... um, can I have the videotape, you know, give us the camera, you know, surveillance camera. And we said, oh, we don't have any. And they were shocked. And I have talked to the chief of police, um, Chief Wilson, and she told me that she supports uh, implementing uh, surveillance cameras outside these, you know, high crime locations or potential high crime locations. And um, but the university won't isn't doing it. Mm -hmm. And so our own chief of police would like to see it happen. Uh, I think it makes sense to at least have that conversation. And so once again, so this is why I say I think we could have used better leadership on these issues. You know, I think we've had plenty of notice and we can compare ourselves to our peers. Um, And I know I've talked a lot, but lastly, Um, I think that we are really lagging in the area of transparency, Um, you know, in terms of just what data is out there, how many people uh, are, you know, experience complaints, how many, you know, how many complaints are filed, how many hearings are there, how many um, of these settle in these non-hearing resolutions. It turns out, I just learned today, two-thirds, 67% of sexual assault and sexual violence complaints going through our process um, are settled in, you know, uh, informal resolutions. And uh, very few go to a hearing. Um, And we shouldn't need a New York Times investigation to find out that number. The university should be providing that data publicly on the web. And so any student, parent, or alum can see it. We also should... um, be doing climate surveys that provide data that is credible and believable and using validated survey instruments according to best practices and social science methodology that compare easily to the data collected by our peer schools. This is just common sense. Mm -hmm. Yale is doing a fantastic job. I invite anyone to look at the website of the Yale University-wide commission, and what you'll see is tremendous transparency. They issue a report every six months that even gives little mini case summaries. Um, And it is amazing the data that you can get from the um, Yale uh, website about how their process is running. Transparency is a part of how how we ensure good good practices because... um, because we can see what's happening and hold the university accountable, right? Mm -hmm. Without that information where everything is just handled in complete silence and secrecy, not even aggregate data is released, we have no way to hold the university accountable. So we say, well, I have this friend and it didn't go well for her. And they say, well, we're doing a good job in general. And any one person could be upset. And, you know, there's and there's no way to tell. There's no way to know if her experience is representative or, you know, an outlier. And essentially students and faculty are left in the position of hearing the administration say, trust me. Mm -hmm. But the incentives around an issue like sexual assault or such, that there's just a tremendous amount of incentive for the university to um, 
to not have a victim-centered response. Mm -hmm. And frankly, there's a lot of incentive uh, for mischief um, with respect to um, all students. I mean, we want a fair process for every student, whether they're accused or whether they're a survivor. I, of course, advocate for survivors, but it it is not in a survivor's interest to have an unfair process um, for anyone because no one wants a do-over, for one thing. And, you know, nothing, you want to see an unhappy survivor, just look at someone who's had to go through two hearings. So everyone is benefited when the process is fair, when it respects the rights of all, and when there's transparency and accountability, um, we're much more likely to get a process that's fair and um, equitable for everyone. Right. Well, I want to circle back a little bit um, because, because there were a lot of really, like, amazing things that, to pull out of there, but... I, I'm curious about where you see fraternity and, you know, Greek culture heading, um, not only at Stanford, but nationally, and especially compared to athletics, because like you said, I mean, you can you can cut fraternities from campus. That is a decision you can make, whereas I think athletics is a much, much different decision. Um, and so, you know, what does that um, look like in terms of, you know, especially since there's been so much backlash against fraternities nationally and in some cases athletic departments? Well, I do think that um, all of these uh, male-only spaces provide a potential you know, according to the research literature, mm-hmm. for to be dangerous for women and for other vulnerable students, transgender students, gay and lesbian students. Um, so uh, I think that there is a set of policies that also involve transparency and accountability um, around these all-male organizations that will be um, essential to making them safe for other students. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and I don't think, by the way, that we can keep going using non-evidence-based practices. So we have a cobbled together, like every other university, this isn't necessarily about Stanford, many, I just will not make it about Stanford. <laughs> I'll say many universities have cobbled together non-evidence-based prevention programs. We'll bring in Jackson Katz to give a lecture. We'll bring in some other, you know, person to give a lecture. They might be very nice people. They might be great motivational speakers. They might have a fancy TED Talk. We have zero idea if that reduces the rate of anything, right? Mm -hmm. We have no evidence basis. We don't do pre and post testing. When I say we, I mean colleges and universities generally, and I include Stanford in that, but not exclusively Stanford. Mm -hmm. There is not, very rarely will there be pre and post testing. Very rarely is there an evidence basis for what is being done. It is more to, quote, do something, Mm-hmm. Right there's some pressure. There's some publicized incident. You know the you know the, the Oregon you know had a, a bunch of athletes that assaulted you know <clears throat> uh, students allegedly um, Baylor right and so there's it, I'm not limiting this to Stanford but Stanford is guilty of this as well. You know let's let's cobble together some you know program that we have you know homegrown created ourselves and it's not evidence based. And so who knows? And so a great deal of money is being expended, and who knows what result. And so uh, that's why I say uh, 
data matters. You know, you need a climate survey that's accurate and that can be compared against other schools. One of the best reasons to be able to compare your climate survey, for example, against other schools is that then you can see if their numbers start to go down relative to yours, what prevention programs are they using? You know, at, let's try that. Yeah. Right. Because we can see that they're getting a better result. Um also, you want to use things that have some evidence basis in the social scientific literature, you know, the things that have been evaluated and show promise and have been published. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I'm excited to be working with a team from the med school to try to bring a program that has shown results and published in peer-reviewed journals, um, both a program for young men and a program for um, uh, potential victims. So I'm, uh, you know, I think that we need to always be trying to have an evidence basis. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think with respect to sports and fraternities, um, policies that focus on accountability, like, you know, like what happened where they suspended those teams that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. policies that focus on accountability, because without accountability, you're not ever going to move the needle. Policies that focus on um, transparency, you know, make the community aware of what's happening. Policies that focus on evidence-based prevention programs, mm-hmm. um, those, I think, are also good um, and essential. So I would say there's, you know, at least those three components yeah. to making them safe. And you brought up um, you brought up Baylor and the Baylor football team. And um, for those who don't know, I, I, there was just an article released very recently about how the Big 12 football, <laughs> the board, is withholding 25% of the revenue right. from the football team, I believe, um, until the Title IX investigation into over, I think it was 50 counts of, of rape or sexual assault um, are are done. What's your take on that kind of that form of punishment? Is that a good form of accountability? What does that mean? I mean, I think they should have yanked their NCAA eligibility. I mean, I don't think that 25% of their revenue is a strict enough sanction, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, I think they should have done the same thing at Penn State. Um, you know, I, I just I think they should terminate their participation in the athletic program. I think that's obvious. I think someone who, you know, just any objective observer would tell you, you know, that suspending them from participating for some period of years um, is the deserved punishment when you have 50 sexual assaults. Um, you know, uh, in this situation, this isn't a, a mistake. This is a plan, right? Right. And this isn't. It's not a bug. It's a feature. Let's put it that way, mm-hmm. right? Sexual assault at Baylor was not a bug. It was a feature. Mm-hmm. Same at Penn State. When you have a situation like that, where sexual assault is a essentially a feature of the sports program, the correct solution is ending the NCAA uh, eligibility of that team. Um, and I think that the that's just common sense. And I think that as to um, the same with fraternities, um, SAE, you know, this isn't going to be popular with some set of your listeners, but uh, you know, they should not have a charter. They should not be a an authorized chartered fraternity based on what they did that was publicized and what they were found responsible for. Mm-hmm. I think losing their house was not. A sufficient punishment. I don't understand why they're an approved student organization after having engaged in that behavior. So to me, I mean, it's not like they weren't warned. They were like on probation and then engaged in an even worse form of problematic conduct. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, uh, leaving them on campus as an official student organization, I think it's these half measures 
that are the kind of what I'm saying, the failure of accountability. And I think that when you have that kind of failure of accountability, you shouldn't be surprised when the results you get are poor. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think to that point, a lot of students may feel like the machinery that implements sexual assault policy here at Stanford is opaque, like you were saying. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about which agents and decision makers are involved in crafting policies that affect students and how those policies actually come into fruition? Well, the process has changed recently. So up until very recently, Stanford sexual assault policy was was under the auspices of the Board on Judicial Affairs, which I was the faculty um, chair of from 2011 to 2013. Mm-hmm. And that's where the process called the ARP that is now no longer in effect, the alternate review process, which was Stanford's first um policy that was specifically for handling cases of sexual assault and dating violence came what that's what that was so before 2010 when the ARP was piloted complaints of sexual assault were adjudicated essentially as complaints of fundamental standard violation through the same process as cheating or um, any other honor code or uh, violation of student policy through the um, what's called the Office of Community Standards. And that was very, very problematic because of a whole host of things that I can go into if you want, but it was a very unwelcoming. I think everyone at the university agree, including the vice including Provost Etchmendi, who, you know, said this, I think, in the press a number of times, um, that the process, you know, under the old system was very unwelcoming to survivors, and we needed to do something to um, make it less intimidating, And uh, because very few survivors were going through the process at all. Um, just to give some data, because I believe in data, <laughs> um, from 1996, which was the first time Stanford even had a charge of sexual assault, not 1896, 1996. That was the first time you could be charged, even in theory at Stanford, mm-hmm. for sexual assault. They to, to 2009, this is all the years we have data for. I collected this data when I was the chair of that committee. I don't think it existed in a tabular form before that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had 175 sexual assaults under the Cleary Act. That, that we knew, or we could have known, because we could have collected it. Um, And we had four hearings, and we had two findings of responsibility. So essentially, our program was totally unutilized. And what we found was that women would come in, victims would come in, and they would find out what the process was. And it involved things like the alleged perpetrator got to cross-examine the alleged victim personally in front of a panel of six people in a room that included witnesses and faculty members and, you know, other student panelists and staff members. And I mean, it was just uh, very public, very humiliating. Uh, there, it was kind of a free for all, um, and I don't think that it made survivors feel safe. So they just didn't want to do it. They would find out what it was, and they'd say, "Oh hell no," and then they would be done. Mm-hmm. And so the end result of that was that we had sexual assailants who were on campus and who were not removed from campus and who were eligible to reoffend and probably did during that period. So um, we uh, 
piloted a new process that was intended to address some of those deficiencies. And it wasn't perfect. It was the product of a lot of different compromises. Um, but it wasn't perfect. But it was good, better, better. <laughs> Step forward. And... Um, and that actually increased the utilization, partly through an advertising effect. I think the publicity around the new policy got some people in the door, and partly because it just was better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the usership went from 2% of cases to 22% of cases in three years. Wow. And, then in tw- and, then, and then the in 2014... 2015, a few things happened. One was that Leah Francis um, protested the fact that in that new process, uh, the perpetrator who assaulted her um, was found responsible for sexual assault through force and violence, which is the most serious thing you can do at Stanford other than, like, shoot someone. Mm -hmm. And all he got was essentially a gap year. Mm -hmm. He had already been admitted to graduate school, and he was told, um, you can... uh, go away for a year and come back and and, and return to Stanford. Mm-hmm. And she got very upset about that, and there was a protest. I think rightfully so. I agree with her. That was not an adequate punishment. And, um, and the university, I think, reacted badly to the public criticism that it received. Mm-hmm. And then the Turner case happened. And so what happened was the university appointed, the provost appointed a task force. And this issue went away, was taken away from the Board on Judicial Affairs, which had been handling it previously, and it was put under the auspices then of this task force. Right. Which then operated in a closed-door fashion, without any transparency, essentially, for about a year. And a little more than a year. And it... issued a report that called for a new process mm-hmm. and made some recommendations for what it should look like. And then that process was several months later implemented. Right. And and the provost also created a f- new f- oversight board. Mm-hmm. And that oversight board, I believe, now has charge of making any further changes to the process, um, and it is removed entirely, I think, from the Board on Judicial Affairs. However, I then read, it's a little ambiguous, because I then read an article in the Stanford Daily that said that actually the Faculty Oversight Board, or I guess there are students on it too, Mm -hmm. will just simply recommend, but it will still then have to go through the BJA, the Board on Judicial Affairs, uh, the exec, the GSC, and the ASSU Senate, mm-hmm. and the Faculty Senate. So this new process that they're running now is a pilot, mm-hmm. and in order to finally get it you know, permanently adopted, I read a statement from Etchemendi that it would have to still go through all that rigmarole. So honestly... And now we have a new president and provost. Right. So honestly, I have no idea mm-hmm. how this is ultimately going to go. But I believe that the process is there's a pilot running. There's a faculty oversight board that's and student oversight board that's going to make some recommendations of changes, mm-hmm. maybe. Mm-hmm. 
And then the pilot, together with those recommended changes, will have to go through the Board on Judicial Affairs, the ASSU, the GSC, the Faculty Senate. Some of those are more or less, you know, rubber stamp than others. Right. But I would think the GSC in particular and the ASSU Senate would provide some uh, actual substantive, would want actual substantive changes and would be in a position to get them. Right. That was my experience the first time. Right. Well, um, I want to know from you what you have, what you think is good about that process, but also exactly what you were going to say. I mean, what is what is detrimental about that process? I think there's, uh, so what's good about it? Um, well, hmm. I think there are some real problems with it. Right. Um, so I'll say what I think they are. And I don't, I think the problems are fairly serious. So right now what's going on on campus is that there's quite a bit of unrest over the fact that an attorney, Crystal Riggins, who was appointed under the process, who is a very fine attorney, she's an African-American woman who is an equity partner at a firm that is, by the way, like makes her a unicorn. There are not many or any female African-American equity partners um, in most law firms. That means she is outstanding. Mm -hmm. And um, it is very upsetting to me to see her being treated um, so disrespectfully. She was uh, rather summarily terminated from Stanford's process. And I think this goes actually back to your initial question, which was, you know, how does it feel to be a critic? Um, You know, I'm in the very lucky position of being a tenured full professor with an endowed chair. Um, Crystal was a contracted attorney to Stanford to provide services for survivors going through the process. Um, Stanford really made a big deal out of the fact that it was providing attorneys. This was a pioneering, unique, you know, they made a very big deal out of it. Lots of PR around how they were doing such a great thing by providing attorneys and they were the only ones. Yeah. And they terminated her for criticizing some elements of the process based on her own experience um, guiding students through the process who had been victimized and what she thought was in the interest of her clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that is very upsetting and disappointing to me, and I think it really takes the luster. (laughs) Like, I would have said a week ago when you said, what's good about this process, I would have said, oh, well, we're providing attorneys for students, and I don't think we're providing enough funding for that. I don't think nine hours is anything like enough, Mm -hmm. but it's a start. But now I can't even say that. Because I think that what they did in that case was they were, you know, they appear to have retaliated against her for her public criticism of the process, and I think that that is uh, not good, mm-hmm. not good at all, not what should have happened. I'm really disappointed about it, and I think that they, if they want to continue to provide legal services for students. The transition that they should make is to just simply give each student a financial grant that they can use to pay the attorney of their choice rather than having a list of only approved because it makes it look as though, you know, you can't be on our approved list unless, you know, you are willing to refrain from criticism in the press. And, um, And so the problem is that what that will mean 
Well, it means a lot of things. Yeah. One of the things that it means is that it, it has the potential to set up a two-tiered justice system. If you don't have money, if you are on financial aid, either an accused or a victimized student, you are stuck with whoever Stanford is recommending, and you are stuck with the number of hours that they are going to pay for. And what lawyers are going to take away potentially from this is, um, I need to tone down my advocacy on behalf of my clients here, or I'm going to get terminated like Crystal, mm-hmm. right? It has a chilling effect on the zealousness with which the lawyers may advocate because they don't want to upset Stanford. Mm-hmm. Potentially, that is what it's setting into motion. And so it means that students with money will get more zealous advocates than students without money, mm-hmm. right? If you have money, you'll go hire your own attorney. So I think the better thing would be to um, just give each student three or $5,000, whatever, you know, right now it's only $1,800, which uh, is not enough money by anybody's lights right. to cover one of these processes, um, which gets me to my next criticism. Mm-hmm. So I think they should just let you spend the money on whichever lawyer you want, and that gets them out of the game of interfering in that representation. I think there are all kinds of conflict of interest and ethical problems that are raised by Stanford interfering in the representation by trying to censor comments, and I think that they should not be in that game at all. Um, The first comment that I would make on the process is a global one, which is that it's too complicated and nine hours is not enough. It's a very dense, very complex, very legalistic process that has many, many, many steps and levels to it and involves all kinds of layers of appeals and things that have to be written, and I think that there is no way that an undergraduate student who has recently been traumatized or who is accused and facing a very serious penalty could possibly navigate their way through that without um, a tremendous amount of help, nine hours of which is not enough. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's first comment. Um, I think it's way too complicated. I don't think that a university should have a process that requires a lawyer, but if you are going to have a process that requires a lawyer, then paying for nine hours only is not fair. So that's global. Second uh, specific comment, so I've given you one specific comment about not getting involved in the legal you know, relationship between lawyer and client. Second uh, comment would be, um, and these are f- going to be familiar to you, uh, I think requiring a unanimous finding mm-hmm. is a very serious um, hurdle that is being put in the path of a student who is um, complaining. So let, and that's a fairly yes. recent change, correct? That is brand went new. From, yeah, the, and that now, was not in the process that I... You used to have to just be a majority, correct? It, no, it was not a majority. It was a super majority. Oh, okay. So I wanted it to be a majority. There were people in the university who wanted it to be a... Uh, unanimous finding, and I fought for two years to prevent it from being unanimous and compromised with it being four out of five. Right. And um, the four out of five, I thought, was a reasonable compromise because it prevented a single holdout from determining the outcome. Right. Um, And... Uh, frankly, I just wasn't going to get better than that. And I mean, that's just part of legislating is sometimes you make compromises and you get things you don't necessarily will like Obamacare, you know, you don't necessarily get Medicare for all, but you get something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so this was my, you know, uh, public option or whatever, you know, it was like, okay, well, I'll accept this. Um, and that way we can move forward and get all the other good things that are in this bill. Right. So we did that. Um, and uh, I was shocked 
when I saw that the task force had gone away and come back with this recommendation, you know, a year later for a unanimous um, panel. Mm -hmm. Because um, that is just a very big hurdle to get over. Mm -hmm. And let me just say that uh, only one of our peer schools, I looked at um, the Ivy League, the Pac-12, and... um, the U.S. News Top 20 and did this research myself with a research assistant. And only one school, Duke, out of all of those schools, has a three-person unanimous panel requirement. So, um, and this is the part of the process that Crystal was commenting on in the New York Times that got her terminated. Right. And what she said was much more mild than what I'm about to say. What she said was, you know, victims find that very intimidating. It's very hard to get that unanimous finding. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to say is I think this is, you know, basically catapult Stanford into the position of being the most unfriendly school for survivors in the country. So um, the um, the U.S. Department of Education says that for a hearing to be equitable, each party has to have equal opportunities. Okay? But in our panel system, she needs... I'm going to say she and he, but the victim. Let me not say she and he. Let me just say the victim. The victim needs three votes to prevail, and the alleged perpetrator needs one vote to prevail. So that is just not equal. On its face, they do not have equal opportunities to prevail. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had a simple majority of either three or four panelists, um, you you would have people in a completely equal position, right? In either case, you would need a majority to prevail, right? And so that is what I suggest, is that we move to a simple majority. Now, it may be that you want to have a higher standard for expulsion. You may want to say expulsion is different, and we should have to have a... Um, unanimous finding to expel. Right now, you have to get two unanimous findings to expel. Mm -hmm. A survivor who comes to Stanford's process has to get a unanimous finding to just to get a no-contact directive. Okay? Just to get a no-contact directive, she needs a unanimous finding. In my opinion, that is outrageous. Yeah. Okay? I do not understand why students are willing to be accepting of that. I think that is just it's crazy. It's just crazy. But you need that first unanimous finding. Then, to expel, you need a second unanimous finding. So what I would suggest is that they have a panel of four mm-hmm. for a finding, and you need a, una- and you need a majority. Mm-hmm. And then you have a panel of three or two that you need a unanimous finding on for an expulsion. I don't object to having a higher standard for to expel someone. I do think it's a significant consequence. It is not the same as going to prison and you don't need full, you know, criminal trial, but it is a serious penalty and I acknowledge that and I do think that that would be reasonable. What's not reasonable is to have a student survivor come in and say, "I want the perpetrator moved out of my dormitory. I want the perpetrator not to be in any of my classes. I want the perpetrator to have to stay, you know, 100 yards away from me. And I want the perpetrator sus- suspended for a quarter. And I don't want them to go to Florence when I go to Florence and, you know, whatever. And you have to get a unanimous panel for that. That just makes no sense. Yeah. 
Um, so I would get rid of that immediately. It's, we're an outlier. We're one of only two schools. You know, none of our peer. I mean, Duke is not a school that we hold up as a peer school anyway. None of our schools that we like to compare ourselves to do that. We should not do that. Um, uh, the reason that that happened uh, is that, and and this the university recently, I think, emboldened by the election of Donald Trump. Uh, sad to say got honest about the reason it did it. Now, I knew this from years ago when I was fighting it off in the Board on Judicial Affairs, uh, but they, uh, they, they told the truth to the Mercury News recently and said we did it to counter, uh, counterbalance, essentially, the um, burden of proof being lowered. So remember I said Stanford used to use that beyond a reasonable doubt. And the yeah. Department of Education said, no, you have to use the preponderance. Yeah. And there were forces at Stanford that were not happy about that mm-hmm. and think that is too low and wanted to make it essentially harder for the survivor to win her case. Right. And so they created a new hurdle which was a unanimous finding. I don't think that's consistent with the spirit of the Department of Education's guidance. Right. The Department of Education put that guidance into place to prevent schools from making it too hard to get help. Right. And Stanford has instituted a rule by its own admission that is intended to make it harder. Mm-hmm. So what is the result of that? Oh, there's a third thing. Yeah. Okay, the third thing is that we have the narrowest definition of sexual assault in use in any school uh, among those same peer schools. So we define sexual assault here to be only um, penetration that has occurred through force or while a victim is completely unconscious, like, you know, like hit on the head, stroke, you know, out cold, unconscious. Intoxicated is not enough. Everything else is misconduct. So some things that are not assault at Stanford are, you know, someone penetrating you while you are saying, no, no, stop, I don't want to, please don't do that, and crying. That's not assault at Stanford. Um, or uh, so, uh, what's also not assault, uh, sexual contact that's carried out through force uh, or while you are completely incapacitated but does not involve penetration. Now, that could be, let me just give you an example, three... Uh, individuals, uh, Rufi, another individual, um, uh, strip that individual naked, uh, fondle that individual without penetration, and that could involve genital contact but not penetration. So if the victim is male, for example, and then uh, take pictures, videotape it, put it on YouTube, that's not assault at Stanford. So there are a lot of things that are not, and same act if carried out through force that is holding the individual down and forcing them, also not assault at Stanford. So as long as it's not penetration. Mm-hmm. That does not make any sense. And that definition is the narrowest in use in any school. So uh, at Yale, the definition is sex that occurs without consent. And that's the most common definition. And that should be our definition. Now, Stanford has stated that the reason they did that is because they, I was wanting to change the default penalty to expulsion for assault. And so what they did was they changed the definition of assault to make it very, very narrow before they agreed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I think the right answer is to decouple punishment from the definition. Um, the way Dartmouth does it is a very good model. Dartmouth defines assault as sex that occurs without consent and then has a penalty code. Mm-hmm. And that is what I wanted to do and what I think should happen here is we should have um, a definition of assault that sends the message cleanly and clearly that sex without consent, bad, don't do it. I think that trying to shade it into gradations of like, this is assault and this is misconduct and this is harassment. I don't think the adolescent brain, I mean, I know you guys are all super smart, is necessarily going to draw the right conclusion from that. Mm -hmm. I think we want to give one message that's clean, that's clear, that's crisp, that's, you know, no consent means stop. Okay, and I think how you do that is you do it the way these other schools are doing it. Then you come to the back end where someone has been found responsible for that, and you have a penalty code. This is what Cal has too, by the way. Um, a very broad definition of assault followed by a penalty code that makes it clear that some kinds of assault are more serious than others because they involve the invasion of bodily integrity through penetration or because they involve force or violence or because they are committed on an incapacitated person or a person with a disability. I mean, we could think about what aggravating factors we would like to have in a penalty code that would make one subject to mandatory expulsion. Um, But we should decouple the definition from that because the message we're sending to assaulted students when we have such a narrow definition of assault is we don't take what happened to you seriously. We don't think it's really assault. I think it's ultimately very disempowering and offensive to survivors. So I don't like that either. Um, And the upshot, you know, kind of of these factors is that um, they are a series of barriers and hurdles to getting a finding, right? First of all, you have this narrow definition of assault. Then you have this highly complicated process that you have to have a lawyer. Your lawyer is only good for nine hours, and if you don't have enough money to pay them and they don't want to do it pro bono, then you're about to lose your lawyer. So you have all these factors that are sort of you know, putting pressure, and what are they putting pressure for? And you need that unanimous finding. And what are they putting pressure for? A non-hearing resolution. Just sign this paper and agree to whatever the university is suggesting as a you know mediated or informally resolved outcome, mm-hmm. and this will be over. And that is what the lawyers have been saying in the two New York Times articles about this. It's very hard to get that 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 um, unanimous finding. There are these other things that I'm talking about, including the limit on time of hours of lawyers, and those things potentially, anyway and reportedly, according to these lawyers, have incentivized non-hearing resolution. And if we look at the statistics that we now know from the New York Times investigation, um, which were not public until the New York Times got involved, which I think is wrong, um, we have had 18 cases in the first year, 12 of which ended in non-hearing resolutions, and six of which went to hearing Of those six, three went for the survivor and three went for the accused. So that means 70%, almost 67% of our cases are um, ending in non-hearing resolutions. In some of those cases, I am sure that was a fine outcome. The university is touting this as evidence that all of those cases ended favorably to the complainant. And the evidence for that 
that is a leap, okay? The evidence for that is that um, they agreed. But all the accused students agreed, too. So by that logic, all of them ended favorably to the accused, right? So we don't know, without a lot more information, whether the victims felt or the accused felt that those were good outcomes or outcomes that they went along with, you know, with some sense of resignation and feeling defeated. Yeah. Um, I certainly feel skeptical that um, that all of those were, um, you know, happy outcomes for for the survivor, and I think that is consistent with what the lawyers for survivors are telling us, that we have incentivized a system of, uh, of side deals, essentially. And there's no transparency, so there's no way for us to know. But I think that you can just look at the system we've put into place and have those concerns. And the fact that it doesn't look like the system that anyone else is using, I think, is not dispositive, but it's a warning sign that there's a problem. You know, if Duke is the only other school doing this, if no other school really has a definition like we do, and and if we have our provost actually saying in the press that we did this in order to um, raise the threshold for finding people responsible, then I, I think that, you know, we should reconsider that. Yeah. Well, I think one thing I've gotten from this interview is clear that we could talk about this for days and I'm just sorry, based on so no chatty. it's incredible yes. um i think and i think this you know you brought up so many things that, and a lot of them were in our questions and so um i just want to thank you so much for your time i think this means we have to do a follow-up because <laughs> you know there's there's so much especially in this context in this day and age that that needs to be discussed with regards to this and i think for me at least it's really hopeful and incredible to hear someone with so many um concrete solutions you know it's not just that the system is is not where it should be it's that there are examples of of good ways or good improvements that stanford can make but um right that's why i said that i don't like the label of just critic because i feel like first of all the role of the critic is an important role right the role of the dissenter in society is an important role and we should never get into a situation where we have excluded dissenters and we're in a world of groupthink because that way um, does not always lead to good solutions. Right. So, uh, and second, you're absolutely right. I have a lot of, you know, I, I'm not simply saying bad, bad, bad. I'm right. saying, look, there are other models and we should be dri- driven by data. Here, let me say it this way. We're the top perhaps research university in the world. Shouldn't we be be doing things like this driven by research and data and evidence? Right? And the short answer is yes. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And so we want to be transparent, accountable and driven by research and evidence and data. And um, that's how I have um, approached this topic. That's how I think students should approach this topic. And I think it drains a lot of the emotion from the topic. This is a very difficult subject. If you talk to the students who've taken my SOCO, I'm sure they'll tell you how how draining it can be to really focus on this topic, um, although rewarding. Um, it is hard to sit and think about it. And focusing on the evidence, I think, um, from an empirical perspective, is a way that we can sort of siphon the emotion out and start to think about solutions. Absolutely. 
Wow, I cannot thank you enough for having this conversation with us. And again, I hope that we have you back one day to to even take this further and maybe even talk more specifically about some of the things that will um, have an effect on Stanford, sexual assault, and the the changing political climate. So thank you so much again for joining us. That's a whole nother episode. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Thank you for having me.